Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, what are some words that to you are inherently funny? Or, or words and or things that just, just say the word instantly, it, it elicits laughter. Monkey. All right, that's a good one. Pickle. Pickle is good. Lederhosen. Lederhosen is really good. Poppycock. Poppycock. That's a good one, too. Squeegee. Squeegee. Yeah. You? Um. Well, let's see. You already took Lederhosen. I think Lederhosen is a good one. Yeah. Uh, cheese. Cheese is very funny. Um. You said monkey. <laughs> um. You, you stole a lot of underwear. Really underwear is always hilarious. Um. And it's funny because a lot of these words will pop up in children's books, which, yeah. of course, I'm knee-deep in with my toddler. So, you know, I'm pretty schooled in, in the funny words. Bugle. Bugle's Bugle is, yeah. yeah. Curious George, that one comes yeah, up Yeah, you're talking time. about um, like an obnoxious instrument or some sort of ridiculous corn snack. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty It's pretty. Which funny. can be tasty. Um, but also there are some words that have a, a kind of joke within them or something like calypgian, which which means well-formed buttocks. <laughs> I had not heard that one. Yeah, okay. yeah, it's, it's a great word. So, you know, you can say the Calypgian so-and-so uh, if you're trying to give someone a compliment, I suppose. What is it an adjective? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And uh, Cali from Greek, beautiful, and uh, Piget, I think that's how you pronounce it, is, uh, means buttocks. Or rump. Rump is another good one. Rump is funny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So when I mean, we're talking about Rumpus this, like what makes... great. Yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that spells fun right there. But, um, but so then we're on talking the other about hand, the funny. Like, yeah. what, why are things funny? I don't know. Because, yeah, because we're talking about uh, words that... We're talking about oh, what are some words that are just not funny at all. Yes. And the, the big one that came to mind uh, that you, you came up with was table. 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 Like, there's just... No way to make the word table funny. Like even if you throw um, other words onto it, like you you know sex table, clown table, clown table, it still sounds kind. And it's like oh, all right, well clown's mm, kind of yeah. funny, but eh, table. Yeah, they're just word elements, funny. which is part of what we found out in our research about what makes things funny. Mm-hmm. You have to have sometimes disparate elements like that, but still, it's not funny. And it was uh, it's interesting because I was looking back at an episode from This American Life in which it's called Tough Room. In which they visited the editorial offices of The Onion, uh-huh. which is, you know, spoof magazine, which is incredibly funny, at least to me. Um, and what they found out is that uh, during the editorial meeting where their mock headlines are pitched, that uh, there's only one laugh for every 100 jokes that are told. So here they are pitching this. And maybe that's part of it because, you know, this is their job and they're doing it every week. And so... But yeah, they still, probably get pretty jaded. I yeah, they, they're yeah. seriously jaded. But, um, you know, they publish 16 stories a week with 16 mock headlines. And to get to those 16 headlines, they go through 600 possible headlines to figure out what is funny. And I was like, well, what, you know, I wonder why why that is. Like, why are some combinations funnier than other and others? And then I looked into it and I was looking at some of their best of. And one of their best ofs was Kitten Thinks of Nothing But Murder All Day. See, now that one didn't do much for me. I don't know. Really? Yeah. Well, they had the, uh, part of it was they had the, the cute photo of the kitten, which you, you know, again, disparate elements, murder, hmm. kitten. No. No, not really. All right. Well, in that episode, too, they were talking about how the headline, local girlfriend always wants to do stuff. 
Okay, that, well, see, now that one's funny. Okay, that yeah. makes the cut, but you know what doesn't make the cut in the same session is uh, Nation's Girlfriends Call for More Quality Time. <laughs> but you <laughs> Really? Like, that one was really yeah. funny. No, no, it's the, the, the first one got the laugh, and everybody huh. else, the second one actually got jeers. Wow. Yeah. But Kittens was a hit. Kittens obviously was a hit, made it. It's, it's, hmm. it's a hit a lot of people's top ten lists. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but just to throw some stats at this and why we're looking at this, um, it, uh, it's just, it's very interesting to think about why we laugh from evolutionary sense, right? Yeah, like what, why, why do we do it? Why is it such a phenomenon? Like what purpose does it serve? We do it all the time. We love it. Some people live f- for it. Some people live to make other people laugh. But what is, what is actually going on, uh, semantically? What's going on, uh, neurologically? Yeah. So that's what we're going to discuss. That's what we're going to talk about today. And uh, here are your stats, too, that we're going to throw at you. Only about 11% of daily laughter is a result of jokes. Now, when you say jokes, do you mean – because, like, we we joke around in this podcast a lot, but it's very rare that I go, hey, Julie, um, knock, knock. You know, I, I we right. don't do a lot of that. So are we talking about strict joke jokes yeah, or just yeah. joking? Yeah, we're talking about the formulaic jokes. So okay. if you're sitting around the water cooler and, so, and someone says, hey, you know, a, a rabbi and a priest and whatever walks through a bar, that kind of joke. So that only 11%, which kind of makes sense, right? Because a lot of us aren't sitting around the water cooler yeah. telling those kind of jokes, uh, the borscht belt jokes. And then another 17 is prompted by media. You know, sort of like uh, LOL where we're like, hey, hey, did and, you see this LOL cat? Or did you read yeah. this Onion headline? Did you watch this episode of 30 Rock? Yeah, or did you see this thing? YouTube yeah. video or so on and so forth? And the remaining 72% arises spontaneously in social interactions. So like you and I sitting here talking the, talking the, the poo here. Okay. Um, talking the poo? Is that the, that's. Uh, shout in the shoe. Shout in the shoe. Okay. Yeah, shoe, sha. I'm trying to avoid the, 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 the expletive, but you know what I'm saying? Just sitting around yeah, talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it turns out that, that we're not the only creatures that laugh. Apes and rats laugh too. <laughs> Although I'm a little bit dubious about this, this rats part, I have to say. Yeah. Um, this is, uh, this, this article says, like children, apes laugh during chasing, wrestling, and tickling games. Oh, I guess I have seen videos where, you know, it looks like they're wrestling around and it li- it does look like they're laughing. Yeah, right? yeah. And it says, chimps and gorillas who have learned sign language have used it for punning, incongruous word use, which is interesting, and playful insults. Intriguingly, it seems that rats may laugh, too. This is, <laughs> this is where I get dubious. A team of researchers at Bowling Green State University reported in 2000 that rats produce an ultrasonic chirping during play and when tickled by humans. These chirps appear to be contagious, and young rats prefer older rats who produce more of them. So... You know, again, dubious there. But there's this idea that, you know, it's not just us that are sitting there having a chuckle and that it's necessary to our existence on some level. And we'll get back to more about tickling in a, in a little bit. Yeah, tickling t- is t- important. Yeah, tickling is very key. It's kind of like the most simple version of a joke. Uh, yes. But but we'll we'll get to that in a minute. First, let's uh, let's talk about what's going on in the cognitive level. Yeah, what's happening in the head to our brains when we're, we're having a laugh. Um, it turns out that when we hear a joke, our brains begin to process it sequentially. Uh, yeah, and I found it interesting that you can, um, uh, when when it's follow- when uh, your brain begins to to process uh, this, there are really sort of two types of jokes mm-hmm. that, uh, and uh, and those are, um, on one hand, you have uh, semantic jokes, 
which uh, relate to the meaning of words. Right. And then you have uh, phonological or uh, jokes or puns, uh, which relate to the way something sounds. Yes. And uh, like the puns, uh, the, the example I kept finding, like it seems like everybody uses the same pun joke in the uh, scientific literature, uh, which goes as follows. Hey, Julie. Hey, Robert. Why did the golfer wear two pairs of pants? How come? Because he had a hole in one. See? Ah, uh, yeah. yeah, nice. But, uh, but semantic jokes, that's where you get into like a lot deeper area. Um, and, and where you end up having, uh, entendres, like double entendres and yeah. triple entendres, which I've always found really fascinating. Like, he, like here's an example of a, of a triple entendre. If I bothered to print out the full joke. Nope, I didn't print out the full joke. So I'm just going to try and remember it here. But a triple entendre, uh, would be like the joke where, um, Lady's pulled over by a highway patrolman, mm-hmm. and uh, and you know he comes up to give her a ticket. And she's like, "Oh, I, I I bet you're going to try and sell me a ticket to the policeman's ball," and then the like a you know like a, a ball like a gala mm-hmm. engagement, mm-hmm. and then the cop gets you know irritated. He's like, "Policemen don't have balls." So this is a triple entendre because on one one. See, and I was already laughing because you said ball, I, and I was <laughs> I already made the association. To be quite honest. But it's but here I'm because I'm a dirty bird. Well, I'm going to explain the joke and okay. take all the humor out of it. Um, policemen don't have balls. You can say that policemen do not, and we're not making any judgment. On no, policemen. no, no. Policemen are great, but uh, policemen don't have balls. One interpretation. Presumably, that, male ones have them. Yeah. Well, they, yeah, but policemen don't have balls in the sense that they do not actually hold balls. They don't have have like masked. Events and um, big uh, <laughs> fundraisers, like, yeah, yeah, big masks. Yeah, and then, but then it's also a shot on um, the policeman's masculinity, mm-hmm. and also on his like his virility, you know, mm-hmm. and also on his courage. Right. So, um, I th- there are some also really good examples of triple entendres in uh, in Canterbury Tales, but I think they're all. Oh yeah, that's yes, yes, yeah. yeah but they're all like ribald. Too, yeah, they're just too gross to. To drag out in this particular, I think they're all in the Miller's Shale or something. Yeah, but we'll have to remember that because that's an important joke to come back to later when we talk a little bit more about uh, philosophy behind jokes. Yeah, but but this is this is interesting because like it, it's kind of like a a language bomb mm-hmm. where it's like three meanings rolled up into one, hits your brain, and then your brain has to figure it out. Yeah, especially when you're talking about like the double entendres, um, your brain is trying to square all these different ideas together. And so um, what you're seeing, let me, let's just walk you really quickly through what's actually happening in your head. Okay. Uh, so the left hemisphere begins to light up with the language processing, right? All right. And this includes the left and right posterior middle temporal gyrus and the left posterior inferior temporal gyrus for semantic jokes, as you spoke about. And the left posterior inferior temporal gyrus and left inferior Frontal gyrus, which are associated with the puns, the phonetic processing. Then the joke is processed through the nucleus accumbens in the ventral tegmental area. Both are part of the mesolimbic pathway, which is associated with aggression, fear, laughter, addiction, pleasure. And it also is connected, among other things, to the hippocampus, which we know deals with memories. So there's a wow. lot yeah, going on like here. Yeah, it's like when this word bomb blows up, it really ricochets through all the neural architecture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then it's hanging out to you in the amygdala, which we we know is associated mm-hmm. with the emotions. So we, what I think is most interesting about this is it's really hitting that reward center of the brain. Hmm. And uh, so, we're you know, we're talking about the reward circuits of the brain getting in on the joke, which makes sense with some of these philosophical theories about what's going on when we hear a good, like, say, toilet humor joke. Right. Yeah. So let's talk about some of these philosophies, because I think it's interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, but but real quick, this also makes makes sense. You ever hear like a really long drawn out joke, and yeah. you, you're you're like, get to the punchline. Yes. I want to, you know, because I guess it's the reward center. You know, it's like it's your rango and come yeah. on, come on, come on. Yeah, give it to me. Yeah, Daddy let me re- this fix. Yeah, I need a little yeah. dopamine release right now. Come on. Uh, all right, so let's look. Yeah, at the different uh, philosophical uh, theories on jokes. Um, first of all, there is the superiority theory of humor. Yes, and this is one that is, has been uh, championed by Plato, Aristotle. Uh, uh, Thomas, Thomas Hobbes. Yeah, Thomas Hobbes. Yeah. And, uh, and this is basically where we find, uh, the misfortune of others really amusing. This yeah. is like slapstick guys getting hit in the head. This is on a more, well, slightly c- cerebral level. You have like cringe comedies mm-hmm. where, where people are, are making all sorts of either, if they're not falling on their face literally, then they're uh, doing so figuratively in say, uh, an episode of The Office or something. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 It can make you really uncomfortable, right? Right. Uh, and speaking of uncomfortable, uh, the next, uh, kind is relief theory. And of course, Sigmund Freud is a big champion, was a big champion of this. Yeah. And this states that comedy is a way for people to release suppressed thoughts and emotions safely. Yeah. I actually read something about the game Peekaboo that kids play, toddlers play, and about how this is sort of like a mastering your own uncertainty. And it's the same sort of aspect of you keep playing peekaboo with someone and they disappear. Uh And that's this object permanence thing and all this stuff with child development. But basically what it's saying is that you you feel you're you're playing the game of someone disappearing in this uncertainty and then coming back and there's the relief, right? Right. So you're sort of working out all these feelings in a safe environment. Right. And it's also allows uh, like uh, the exploration of taboo subjects or just yes. sort of crude things like fart jokes. Good stuff. And then we have uh, incongruity theory, um, which is generally associated with Immanuel Kant. And it suggests that jokes happen because people notice the disconnect between their expectations and the actual payoff. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, uh, like a... Like nonsense humor tends to fall into this, where something something happens that that doesn't make a lick of sense, and it's it creates it, ambiguity. Yeah, it creates ambiguity, like like Monty Python is often uh, put up as an example of this. Yeah, or a simple setup, like a woman and a duck walk into a bar. Right, okay. there's two disparate elements. I don't know the end of that joke, and oh, I apologize if gosh, it's awful. My reward center is just crushed. I know, oh. right? See, sorry about that. No dopamine for you, but um, but I mean that's the setup. Like your brain is automatically like, what? A woman, a duck, a bar. <laughs> that's, that's the ambiguity. But going back to your your policeman ball balls joke, um, yeah. there I thought was interesting that the whole uh, superiority, the Aristotle um, that that type of joke, because here you have uh, it's an authority, right, right. A, a policeman, and you're sort of leveling the playing field by making fun of this policeman's mas- masculinity. Yeah, and he's the one who's tricked into saying he has no balls, so. Right. It's, it's yeah. It's it, he's he's made a fool out of himself as well. Yeah. 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 So I mean, like, I, I just think these philosophies are really interesting when you start to you know. Of course, we're taking apart the joke, which is never funny. Um, you know, I think there's there's a quote about like dissecting humor is about as funny as dissecting a frog. But, yeah. You know, uh, and the frog dies. <laughs> so, but there is this one guy. There's always going to be that one guy, that one gal who is looking for the reason why we do what we do. And in this instance, there is a man named Peter McGraw. He's a professor of marketing and psychology at the University of Colorado, Boulder. And he heads up the Humor Research Lab, or HURL for short. <laughs> um, and he's trying to create a grand unified theory of humor. And we'll talk about that in a moment uh, right after this break.
This presentation is brought to you by Intel, sponsors of tomorrow. All right, we're back with the with the grand unified theory of humor, which um, which I just I just imagine like these uh, these different scientists like standing around like in clown wigs and uh, and and like just furiously working in laboratories with sight gags. Well, what is funny about this is that this research lab, they pretty much do everything that you could ever think of to to test out what makes oh, yeah. something funny. Like yeah. they actually even get some of their subjects high on marijuana. Yeah, and these are people who are in who are using it legally for uh medical purposes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um yeah, that's important to talk about so that that doesn't get raided after someone does this <laughs> podcast. Um or people start calling up saying, "Dude, dude, I really need to be part of this yeah. experiment." Um uh, but yeah, I mean, they're sitting there playing like hot tub time machine <laughs> with, you know, the control group, which is not high and the medical, uh, marijuana, um, subjects and trying to figure out if, duh, you know, if this, this drug would make something funnier. And they're actually even like, uh, having some people watch it from, you know, a certain distance and then another distance from the TV to the, to the eyes to see if that makes it funnier. Mm-hmm. So that every single thing that you could think of, they're trying to test about what makes something funny. Including like the distance in which you watch an action unfold, huh? Which is kind of nuts. So, like, if you watch somebody do something stupid, if you're standing close to them versus watching them far away. Well, and this is more for um, for for media, right? So, oh, okay. for if you're watching something on the internet or something on the TV, and again, this is you know you have to look at this. This is a guy who is a professor of marketing and psychology, so obviously he's going to be using whatever findings he has for marketing purposes. And since you know, internet is a huge part of the way that we consume our comedy these days, you know, obviously there are going to be some people who are going to buy into this research right. eventually. So that being said, you know, I'm just trying to talk about the bottom line here. It's usually money that's motivating this. But, but, their, um, but their big work is this uni- unified theory. This unified theory yeah. was just funny because it's almost like the theory of everything. When we talk about string theory. Yeah, yeah, because because like in that we're talking about all these different theories about how the universe works and they, they don't all work in unison. They can each sort of – they can describe aspects of the universe mm-hmm. but not the full picture. So the argument here is like the superiority theory, the relief theory, the incongruity theory. These are all great and they can yeah. – d- describe like large sections of humor and they can describe like whole um you know whole tv shows but they're not a unified theory of what's going on yeah they're not they, there's not everything wrapped up into one but this dude says that there there is this unified theory and is called the benign violation theory yeah and, it, and like most things it seems uh it, it relates uh it, it manages to explain everything uh through a venn diagram yeah. <laughs> Which, uh, if you're, if you're not familiar with the, I'm sure you've seen them in infographics on, uh, well, not really infographics, they're just graphics on, uh, on the internet, but, um, but it's like two big circles and they're overlapping just a little bit. Mm-hmm. And where the two circles overlap, that's where the magic happens and whatever is being described. Yeah. And actually, there's a great visual on Wired. This is, uh, one of, one of the pieces of research that led us to this. And the article is called One Professor's Attempt to Explain Every Joke Ever Told. And that's that's where you can actually see this Venn di- yeah. diagram, which is, you know, again, funny that they're even applying a Venn diagram to it. Yeah. But but it but it sums it up really nicely, because in this Venn diagram, like you don't have to look at it. In fact, don't look at it. Just listen to me. Um, <laughs> two big circles walk into a bar. Uh, no, t- two big circles. One is labeled um, violation and one is labeled benign. Now, when we're talking benign, we're talking like the word table. Um, right. <laughs> um, well, table well, not, is, table is the most benign thing we could come up with, but things that are not threatening to us, right? Things that are maybe just you know they're normal. They're not even a, they're not really funny, and 
they're, well, nothing in each circle is funny. They will you know? not create any harm. Right. Yeah. They're not going to create any harm. <laughs> they're just benign. All right. Then you have the violation um, uh, circle. And not everything in the, in the violation circle is inherently funny. But but can become right. funny. Um, so these are things like violations of personal dignity, of linguistic norms, like somebody has an unusual accent, you know, uh, and personal dignity would be like slapstick, uh, physical deformities, you know. These um, are yeah, and like slapstick being like banana peel yeah. jokes, right? Like slipping out a banana peel. Social norms, like you know, just anybody behaving strangely. Uh, moral norms, uh, people doing things that are entirely disrespectful or, mm-hmm. you know, or, or just outrageously awful. Um, and, uh, and, and so that's the violation sphere. Yes. And when these two overlap, when you have something that is, that is at, at once benign and a violation, that's where the humor happens according okay. to this theory. So you could have something that in, in life where it truly is threatening, but right. when you overlay it with something that's benign, you take the threat out of it and you still have the taboo and then you get the funny, right? Right. Okay. And so they, they use the example of Sarah Silverman, uh, you know, to say this is a perfect example of BVT, which I thought was funny because she really deals in some very awkward territory. I mean, right. She talks about sexual abuse, incest, so on and so forth, bestiality with, I mean, she, has a cute little dog that oftentimes she makes some inferences that are awful. Mm-hmm. It's disgusting sometimes. Yeah, and she's she, really into toilet humor too. But she gets away with it because she's cute and she comes off. I mean, her, her persona anyway is one of kind of a dunce. So. Well, yeah, they, they say the, um, the professor says that she can say these appalling things because it, it registers as benign because she, she seems so oblivious to their offensiveness. Right. So she's downplaying it in a sense. And then he says, because she's so darn cute. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's really interesting to look at it that way. And what's well, like, like, like even things that are truly horrible, like cancer, you know? Yeah. It's like in the it's definitely in the violations uh, sphere of things. Mm-hmm. But oh, but but it can cross over into that area where it can, in theory, I mean, I don't have any examples, but I mean, you hear comedians joke about cancer. You hear them joke about I mean, you you, you name it. And, and, they, and no matter how horrible it is, I guarantee you somebody's made a joke about it. Well, uh, the, Woody Allen, who said once that something like tragedy plus time equals comedy. So yeah. there, there has to be that distance. Yes. And uh, and I think that's that's what's really as we're going to continue to discuss here. I think that's what's really awesome about about comedy and about what this this theory um, seems to to. Uh, to point to as far as this uh, this this convergence area, this mm-hmm. uh, this benign violation area, but but real quick back to table. One thing that I <laughs> you found, are so intrigued with table. Well, it's like like I'm, I'm, like I said, everything in the violation area mm-hmm. can conceivably become comedy. I think. Yes. But can but I don't. I have this feeling that not everything in the benign can become comedy. Well, like no, table. no, yeah, yeah. Like what would you it take have to, to make start table out, funny? You, well, you'd have to be tickled on a table. Right. I don't know. Maybe. Okay. If it were a gurney, yes, a gurney could be funny, but a gurney is no longer a table. A gurney like a has tragedy table. associated with. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So that's the violation. Where a table is just too, just empty of meaning. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. You always are going to have to go to the to the violation category first, and then overlay the yeah. line. I think. I don't know. I say always, not being yeah, a humorologist. But but yeah, like like Whoa. table, not funny. Sex table, not funny. Sex gurney funny sex gurney yeah awesome and, and a good name for a band <laughs> but let's talk about tickling okay yes tickling is is a great example of violation and benign uh hitting each other because uh 
you're being tickled and you're laughing if you're ticklish. If you're not ticklish, you're something's wrong with you. Right. But, um, but, it, but you're being tickled and, and you're just laughing your face off. But at the same time, you're like, don't do it. Stop it. Don't yes. tickle me anymore. But like, so what's going on there? Because I'm, I'm enjoying it yet I'm hating it. It's, it's this weird, um, combination of things. Okay, well, this this is from the article. They say that even tickling long a stumbling block for humor theorists appears to fit into this BVT. Tickling yourself can't be a violation because you can't take yourself by surprise. Uh, being tickled by a stranger in a trench coat isn't benign. It's creepy. <laughs> I would agree with that. Only tickling by someone you know and trust can be a benign violation. Yeah. All right, so that makes sense, right? Because you already have this sort of um, <clears throat> communication between each other, trust level. It's mm-hmm. not creepy. And that reminds me, wasn't there, uh, there was a politician who I think in the last year or so got in some hot water because he tickled one of his aides, hmm. which was, uh, that's a situation where sure, you know, the someone that someone, but you're not, that's completely inappropriate in the workplace in case. Oh, wow. Did they, did, it, did it really blow up? Did they call it tickle gate? They really, yeah, it got a lot of traction, actually. Wow. Because, I mean, who tickles? Well, no, but really, I mean, but can yeah, you what imagine it, what our boss just coming being, by and yeah. tickling us? Yeah, that would be weird. Or if you saw, yeah, if you were to see your boss tickle somebody at work, you'd be like, what? Yeah. What kind of relationship is that? And I did have a boss, actually, but that's for an entirely, that's not even for the podcast. That um, tickled, tickled everybody? He, yeah, well, he did, yeah, he tickled people. He actually asked people to smell his milk, too, to make sure it hadn't gone rancid. Uh, Wait, I didn't last there very long. Um, <laughs> so anyway, uh, what this all ties into this whole violation thing and, and this benign violation and, and trust and not right. trust ties into what they say the ultimate takeaway of McGraw's um, studies are, uh, is that the evolutionary purpose of laughter and amusement is to signal to the world that a violation is indeed OK. Building on the work of behavioral neurologist V.S. Ramachandran. We've talked about him before. Yeah. He's done a lot of really interesting stuff. McGraw believes that laughter developed as an instinctual way to signal that a threat is actually a false alarm. Say that a rustle in the bushes is in the wind, but not a saber-toothed tiger, right? right. So it's the wind, not not a tiger. Um, well, like the, the classic example that comes to mind is you're, you're watching a horror movie. Yeah. And they do the typical, like, something jumps out, and you're like, <gasps> everybody, everybody freaks out. And then you see, oh, it was just the wind blowing. And it's a really right. cheap horror movie effect. But then everybody laughs. He's like, ah, oh, that was nothing. It's the relief part, yeah. right? So Which is get, the Freudian, philosophy, yeah. you know philosophy behind that but you can imagine like some primordial hunters like out you know out on, on the, yes. the, on the, the the grass and something some there's suddenly this movement and they freak out and they they lift their stone weapons to to to, uh, to beat it hack away it to bits. Yeah, hack it to pieces and it's just uh you know it's just the wind it's just or it's, or it's their uh, their scout coming back from uh over the other side of the hill and they're like oh it's and they feel a bit foolish perhaps die. even you yeah. know sort of laughing at yourself so it's laughing at the situation laughing at yourself um but one of the things that we thought was really interesting about it is it, particularly in this instance of um an evolutionary sense is how is it used socially i mean we've yeah. seen arguments before i'm sure you've seen it too where um where something escalates between two people and it's pretty common that one person will say something humorous to sort of try to negate the escalation of the argument. So humor is definitely used in a social way as a sort of social contract to say, you know what, there, this is a false threat. Don't worry. I'm not going to hurt you. You're not going to hurt me. Yeah. Um, but we also wanted to look at it in a wider sense and it reminded us of this bit in a book called Freakonomics 
that sort of examines, you know, the underlying um, condition. Uh, this, this is the thing having to do with the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, Ku Klux Klan. And what they found is that, uh, well, for, it's kind of a long story, but basically there's this one guy who infiltrated the KKK in the 1940s. Yeah, and everybody's familiar with the Ku Klux Klan, I, I would imagine, but this right. is the uh, white supremacist group that you know grew out of the uh, post-Civil States, War the South. Yeah, area. Right, right. And actually, uh, they got the idea for the sheets over the head from the film Birth of a Nation. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, this guy, he sort of went undercover and he hung out with Ku Klux Klan for a very long time and he figured out all of their passwords and all of their different secrets or secret handshakes. And by the way, this is a really goofy organization. Yeah. I, I was looking through one of their manuals once because like an old manual mm-hmm. that, uh, like, you know, I, my family came from the South. So at some point in the past, like some old uncle or great great uncle was involved in it and like so, whoa yeah so so i ended up getting to touch this like crumbling manual and it is the goofiest thing you ever saw i mean yeah not to dis that is the thing about goofy and humor though because because on one level you can't discount that these guys no, were they were terrorists horrible, they're horrible absolute stuff. terrorists yeah. yeah but on the other hand they were calling themselves the Ku Klux clan and they had words like the something like the grand clue clagle they all had these ridiculous titles and i've subsequently um read that um like words that have the cluh sound in it mm-hmm. or the cuh sound are inherently funny. That's why clown is inherently funny. Right. Um, and that's why. And you've got clucks. Yeah, clucks. Just like a cluck. And I mean, there's just, so, I yeah. mean, right. They, so they were really asking for it. Yeah, they were completely saying, asking yeah. for it in the sense to be made fun of. Um, and also to be brought down. Really, but uh, and they even had like a secret handshake that had like a fish wiggle or something. Oh, I mean, really, it doesn't get any any sillier than that. Uh, but anyway, so this insider found out all this information. Um, he was trying to figure out what, what do I do with this information to make it most effective. He mm-hmm. did a, a couple of different things, but then he figured out what you know the, the only way to really bring them. Uh, to their knees as an organization is to take the secrecy out of what they were doing. And so he fed all the information that he had amassed to the producers of a radio show, Superman, actually. And really? he pitched. It was the Superman it radio was show. The okay. Superman radio show in the 40s. And he said, why don't we do a series that's called Superman versus the Klan? And they were like, yeah, let's, let's go for it. And so he wove all of those secrets, the handshakes, the passwords, so on and so forth, uh, the coding into the the narrative mm-hmm. and so what ultimately was their demise is that all of a sudden they heard this being broadcast and they realized that they were not a super secret organization anymore they could not um, move in the ways that they had moved before and so that essentially sort of grounded them but not only that what they saw was that their kids were playing out um, the drama of what they were uh-huh. doing and some of them were pretending to be Superman, vanquishing the Ku Klux Klan. And, the, you know, some of them were pretending to be the Ku Klux Klan members with sheets over their heads. And they were they basically are making a mockery of huh. the Ku Klux Klan, which, again, they were begging to be mocked. Right. With with all of their uh, myriad silly silliness there. But uh, th- this was just really greatly um sort of hamstrung what they were trying to do. And it's fascinating. It's 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 indirect, but it's humor that leveled the playing field. Wow. So you drag something horrible out of this, uh, out of the sphere of, uh, of, of violation, mm-hmm. you bring it into that crossover between violation and benign mm-hmm. and, and you can remove the terror from it. You can remove the yes. fear from it. Yes. Because even though, yes, they did kill people. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and they didn't do it very often, but they did it enough to, to make it a real threat to people. Yeah. Right. So it, they were a real threat, but, you know, what was happening is that people were saying, 
really, these are a bunch of cowards who put sheets over their heads and they're doing horrible things. And, you know, they were sort of calling them for what they were. And that really took the, the power out of out of the structure. It reminds me, uh, like anytime I, I hear conversations about humor and, and get into discussions of the nature of humor, I, I think back to uh, Umberto Eco's book, The Name of the Rose, mm-hmm. which uh, which deeply concerns humor. Um, they're like there's a whole, the whole plot about the, this missing uh, uh, book, uh, Poest- uh, Aristotle's uh, second book of poetics, and uh, it contains all this stuff about humor. And uh, there's a, a character in the book that's very concerned about such a book falling into the into the hands of the general population, or at least the general um, monastic population mm-hmm. at this monastery, this medieval monastery, because it if if someone like Aristotle were to say humor is great, then then where does it end? Do you end up, you know, cause when you laugh at something, you take away its power. Mm-hmm. And so what, what, if, what happens when you, when you laugh at, at the church? What happens when you laugh at God? Mm-hmm. Uh, that, you know, th- the power of humor to change a uh, society is, uh, is, is pretty phenomenal. Um, I was, I was running across, uh, looking for uh, other examples of this and, uh, I, I found an interesting, um, uh, essay that I'll have to link in the accompanying uh, blog post, uh, for this, uh, podcast. Yeah. But uh, they, they found that cartoons mocking capitalism uh, played a huge role in the rise of socialism in the United States in the early 20th century. Huh. Because there were all these political cartoons. And yeah. They were, you know, they'd show the capitalist, uh, you know, creating all these like fat cat capitalist, uh, um, you know, icons in the uh, in, in the in the political cartoons. Mm-hmm. And they were and they were using this to to drag this topic into the uh, into the comedic uh, area. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it helped, you know, Help the, the rise of socialism. Well, we talked too about just even sitcoms, uh, Jefferson's or uh, All in the Family. Yeah, Archie uh, Bunker. Archie yeah. Bunker. I mean, you know, he presented some horrible violations, right? Yeah. Um, and yet there there was this benign factor because they were making fun of Archie Bunker. You know, I mean, in a sense, they were, you know, he his he had a sort of certain personal truth, uh-huh. but that truth was. Sometimes silly, I mean, you know, obviously a lot of times silly when they shown that light on him. Yeah. And so it sort of broke some of the barriers that you might not talk about in civilized conversation. Yeah. And it also I think you, you, you do see examples, too, of, of what appears to be t- take uh, perceived violations by some like mm-hmm. things that that some segments of the population don't don't agree with. Like we were talking about uh, Modern Family, mm-hmm. which is a, a current uh, sitcom, I think, and I think it just wrapped up its second season. Mm-hmm. And uh, and this shows some some. Traditionally non-traditional families. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think all, each model is, is a lot more common now, but, but non-traditional in the TV sense. Right. Because you have, uh, you have a gay couple that's adopted a child. So mm-hmm. in that you have both, both a, a gay couple and, uh, an adoptive family, mm-hmm. which are both underrepresented. Well, the child is Vietnamese too. Right. Yeah. So it's multi, so it's, it's cultural, also multiracial. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you have like, uh, you know, then you have more, you have another multiracial couple where, uh, there's also a big age difference. Right. And, uh, and so you, you take these, Ideas, which to some segments of the population would be considered violations, mm-hmm. and you, but you move it into a mainstream comedic area, mm-hmm. and we're suddenly we can find humor in these situations, and it and it re- removes the sting, right? Well, yeah, you you move less from uh, um, looking at something objectively and more to humanize yeah. it, right? Now, um, now of course, with all this, so you have to. Um, you have to keep it. There's also sort of a chicken and egg thing with any of these topics. Yeah. Because you, you, on one hand, you, you can't say, oh, well, uh, the Jeffersons changed, um, you know, changed the way we think about race or something like that. I mean, that would be ridiculous. Um, 
there's also a lot of mirroring where the the show is mirroring changing attitudes. So right. So so we're not arguing that these shows are are have just tremendous unparalleled power. But I but I do think they tie into into the role comedy plays in social change. Yeah, and just one quick uh, sort of science note here too is is uh, we we came across this research. It was a TED dot com talk on humor and smiling specifically, oh, yes, smiling and it was really interesting. It was this study. They had a control group of people watching things that were funny, and they would rate them from like one to five what they thought was funny. And then they had another group that had a pencil in their mouth, holding a pencil in their mouth while they watched and they rated. What they found was people with a pencil in their mouths were rating things less funny. The reason is because of, you're talking about this mirroring uh-huh. is uh, you've got your mirror neurons, you're, you're watching something, and there's a really deep connection to mirroring other people's behavior. So when you're watching something that's funny, you are going to start to smile. You start to engage those muscles. When those muscles are inhibited, whether it's a pencil or Botox injections, by the way, <laughs> you're less able to empathize. Huh. So, again, you've got comedy as something which is, you know, this this uh this great unifier that really can allow people to better understand different perspectives Wow. And sort of, uh, you know, so, other emotional states. And also, states. do not trust a superhero who covers up his mouth. Like Batman, you can see his mouth. So you're going to be able to, to he's huh. going to be able to, to understand people more. But Spider-Man, don't know what's going on. Yeah, but what about the Joker? He's yes. smiling all the time. You can't tell what's going on, right? It's it's like Botox in a way. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, but there you go. That's 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 a. Uh... Well, it makes me think too of laughter yoga, which oh, you're opposed to, right? I'm absolutely opposed to laughter. <laughs> I I have practiced yoga for a number of years, but yes, laughter yoga. Uh, my my wife also is. Uh, I think she's at least on the fence uh, about it, or she doesn't like it one or the other. But laughter yoga is where you uh, where a yoga group will 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 start laughing. And, mm-hmm. and it's fake at first. I mean, it's very fake because there's generally not that much funny right. uh, in a yoga class unless, you know, somebody farts. Right. Uh, but uh, but because <laughs> we can <laughs> well, normally I'm not going to talk about farts in, in, in this podcast, but, you know, it's a humor podcast. So yeah, there you go. Well, yeah. But anyway, um, yoga, people will suddenly they'll start laughing. They'll be like, ah, ha, 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 ha. And then everybody's yes. laughing. And then eventually the laughing laughter becomes real laughter. Because it's awful. That's why. There's no other choice but to laugh. It's like, you know what I don't like about it? It's like tickling yourself. Yeah. It's just not, it's weird. And I don't like to be forced into to tickling myself or laughter, I have to tell you. Okay. Just for the record. Okay. Just just for the record. Gotcha. I know you're not going to make me take a tickling or tickling yoga class, a laughing yoga class, but I'm you just You should start it. You. you kick it off. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, hey, um, I guess it's time for listener mail, huh? Mm-hmm. Well, cool. The first thing I'm actually going to hit here is not really listener mail per se, but um, I uh, listener feedback. Well, well, they, they haven't listened to the podcast yet, so I don't know. This is it's, we're we're really playing with causality. All right, here. Mysterio, bring but, it on. But um, uh, since I've uh, along with uh, Holly Frey, one of our uh, yes. editor, our tech editor here, I've started uh, contributing to the main How Stuff Works uh, Twitter and Facebook accounts, yes. which are just How Stuff Works on Twitter, mm-hmm. How Stuff Works on Facebook, and I'll label those with my name. But uh, I was researching; we were researching for this podcast yesterday, so I decided to call out to, to the uh, the readers there and it's like, "Hey guys, what are some words that you words or things that you find inherently funny?" Okay, and uh, so I'm going to read a few of them: uh, pigeonhole, bush. Ugly, bald, nostril, nostril, nut, laugh, groin. 
I would like to add that groinage is, is even funnier. Yes. Um, cheeks, Harry, Duke, feces, chipmunk, milk toast, mail slot, pumpernickel, spoon, garbanzo. I think garbanzo is especially funny in that it's such a, it sounds really elegant for what it is, you know? It's like just like a little... I don't know. It seems like a character, like a Tom and Jerry character to me. Like Garbanzo. Garbanzo. <laughs> I don't know. Hobnob. Schnitzel. Schnitzel is pretty funny. Yeah. There is a... Um, schnitzel, the German food is really big in Huntsville, Alabama, because of uh, like uh, the NASA there and the mm-hmm. uh, you know, German population that moved there after the war. And uh, and there, there was actually was like a former Dairy Queen like fast food restaurant mm-hmm. that had been turned into a fast food schnitzel restaurant. And it was called the Schnitzel Farm. And they're like, that's a great combination of words right there. Uh, muck is another one that was suggested. Banana. Yeah. Poop. Moose and moist. Is ointment just awkward or is it funny? Oh, ointment's funny. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, it's a violation, right? It's yeah. awkward. Kumquat is also pretty funny. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of good ones there. Uh, we should probably hear from people, too, about what they think is the funniest words uh, yes. that they've heard. Yeah, that I would be... Yeah, if I would... I would read one more list of of, <laughs> of words after, you know, a couple of podcasts. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's read one uh, one quick listener mail before we close it out here. Uh, an actual listener mail. Eric writes in and says, uh, "Your uh, in your intro to your dad's podcast, uh, we did a Dads of the Animal Kingdom episode for Father's Day, um, you made me think of this joke. Hope you like it. So this is very timely because it's a joke, right? A dog walks into a bar in Texas with a heavy bandage on his foot. The bartender played by Randy Jackson, says, Yo, dog, what's up? The dog replies, I'm looking for the man who shot my paw. Oh, Eric. Hope you liked it. If not, not say so, I'll send you no more jokes. No, no, send them. Send them. (laughs) I can't, I mean, yes. That made me kind of, uh, that made me gaw, but still, I love it. Yeah, there's nothing like a, uh, that's a weird thing. It's like the jokes that I I generally don't get to hear actual joke jokes unless they're really bad jokes like those yeah. are the those are the jokes I actually want to hear they're really cringe worthy bad jokes yeah, yeah yeah it's good stuff I have to say I have a soft spot in my heart for Don Rickles yeah. as awful as he is he really is yeah but anyway that's for he's a really time. nice man in real life I understand He's not. <laughs> He's not. He's not. My dad. Um, long story, but my dad had dinner with him, and he said it was. Oh really? It's like a you know getting grilled and yeah, I roasted. Lo- I love the bit where he talks about the, the night uh, Frank Sinatra saved his life. Oh, I've not heard that. Oh uh, well, he was uh, he was doing the stand up bit, and this was way back in the day, you know, the Rat Pack days, though. And uh, and he sees uh, Frank is sitting there with his cronies, uh, you know, in the front uh, front row. So Don Rickles is an insult comedian. Yes. So he he tears into Frank a little bit. And uh, and he says, uh, and you know, he's like, oh, you know, I guess he'll have, he'll be a good sport. I'm not tearing into him about that. So he makes fun of Frank a little bit. But after the show, Frank Sinatra ends up saving his life because some uh, uh, he goes out into the alley mm-hmm. and these guys start just beating the crap out of him. Uh-huh. And then Frank Sinatra comes out and he's like, "That's enough, boys. He's had enough." Or that's good, boys. He's had enough. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm not gonna say mafia or anything <laughs> or planned to have him beat up an alley yeah. or anything like that. And then save life, but I'm sorry, Frank Sinatra. You know he had a couple boys go out there. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's the, that's why it's funny because he it's, clearly he had somebody beat up Don Rickles. Or Don. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, if you have any uh, thoughts on humor, um, what you find funny, or and and certainly just trying to figure out how humor works, uh, do let us know. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter as Blow the Mind. 
uh, we're on there all the time. Yeah, and do you agree with this benign violation theory? Do you think that it is the grand unified theory of humor? Let us know at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.